please join me in the prayer for illumination. Gracious Lord, as the psalmist said, you made known your ways to Moses, your deeds to your people Israel. Because we are frail, because we are mortal, because we are dust, we need something firm, something immortal, something solid upon which to build our lives and our identities. Instead of scattering us by the wind of your spirit, establish your throne in our midst as it is established in heaven. Make your kingdom a reality in our midst today. And do all of this by opening your word to us. Make Jesus known upon us that we might be his faithful servants and at the last day enter to the joy of his everlasting kingdom in his name. Amen. The New Testament reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 1 to 9. You can find it in your pew Bibles on page 1250. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will no need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. The angel said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy written in the scroll. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your fellow prophets and with all who keep the words of this scroll, worship God. This is the word of the Lord. Be to 
Our Old Testament lesson is taken from the book of Ruth, the fourth chapter, in verses 1 through 12. This can be found on pages 269-270 of your Pew Bibles. Ruth, chapter 4, heading now into the, the very end of Ruth, and we have just two more meditations on this marvelous book. So let's humble ourselves once again under God's word and hear his words. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer that he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative, Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. Verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. I hope that those of you who are maybe new to the Bible or new to church going among us will forgive me for beginning with a little bit of Bible trivia. I know that's not fair for some of you. This won't happen regularly, I promise. But let me ask you this question. Why did God come down from heaven 
and mess up the construction of the Tower of Babel. Why did he do that? Was he intimidated, maybe, by human progress? These people are getting good. They're going to build a tower all the way up to heaven if I don't stop them. Or did he just want some diversity of languages, which is a beautiful thing, and so that's why he messed up their languages and their communication, and now we have languages all over the world. Well, Genesis 11 actually tells us the reason, indirectly anyway, that this tower and the building of it was such a bad idea. What's the reason? The reason is that the people, as they were building it, were saying to one another what? They were saying, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. These days, some people say, you know, I don't want very much. I just want to have fun before I die. That's the reason they get out of bed. That's the reason that they learn, they work. They do it for the weekends, like we said in our confession of sin. They do it for vacations. They do it for romance, maybe. They do it for pleasure. People say, look, everybody just wants to have a little fun. That's the meaning of life. Get as much out of it as you can. But actually... I don't, I don't know that I buy it. I don't know that that's really why you're living. I don't know if there's such a thing, really, as a true hedonist, somebody who lives for pleasure. Why? I think that if someone says they're living for the joys and pleasures of life only, I think it's because they have buried their real and deepest desires down under a pile of accumulated pleasures. Small things. People really want what? They want lasting significance. This is what makes the lives of Boaz and Ruth and uh, Elimelech and all the others so much like ours. We want to outlast our short lives somehow. Even if we've fooled ourselves about what we really want, what we really want, after all, is to last, to matter. And God knew this about the architects of the Tower of Babel. Their desire was to have a lasting significance. And that's not the problem. We want that, and it's built into us. But their plan was the problem. Let's make a name by ourselves, for ourselves. By myself, for myself, or even even maybe by ourselves, for ourselves. That might be the way that individuals work, the way that nations work, the way that people group works, identity groups work. That may be the way that the world works nowadays. But it's not the way that it was designed to work by its creator. And I think as we'll see today, by myself, for myself, is not the way that the redemption of the world is going to happen either. Now, this whole book of Ruth has been leading us by the hand up to this crucial moment. If you have just joined us uh, in these studies, then you don't get the tension as Boaz goes to the gate and seeks to finalize this marriage with Ruth. But we've been waiting for this moment of redemption, the moment when these poor Bethlehemites are saved from insignificance. But as we approach this moment, we've got to do it carefully if we're going to appreciate all that happens. So I want us to look together at three aspects 
of the redemption that we find in this passage. What are they? They are first the need of redemption, the cost of redemption, and then finally the joy of redemption. So the need and the cost and the joy. So let's start with the need for redemption. Why is there such a need for redemption? Most of you know that I was with my family in Korea for three years prior to moving here to Switzerland. And one of my joys was I got to teach philosophy to 16 and 17 and 18-year-old students. And each time we went through a course in philosophy, my students and I would read a section from the contemporary French philosopher, Luc Ferry. Luc Ferry. And Ferry is not a Christian believer, but he has a lot of respect for religion and what religion is trying to do for people. As a philosopher, he even says, look, religion and philosophy are on the same team. We're trying to do something similar. We're attempting to do this. What's religion and philosophy trying to do? He says, we're trying to help people deal with the fact that they are not going to live forever. Religion and philosophy, he says, both offer his words, salvation, redemption to us, at least an attempt at salvation, a way to make our lives significant even though we're going to die. How did people like Elimelech and Naomi and even Boaz and Ruth deal with the fact that they were going to die? What was redemption for them? It was very simple. They lived simple lives in those days. I envy them in a way. But their hopes and dreams were big. They hoped that their name, after all, would be carried on through the generations that followed them. That they wouldn't be wiped out of history. That God would help them keep their families together, keep their land together, give them children to inherit that land so that their lives and so that their names were never forgotten. Speaking of forgetting, it's actually been so long now, if you've been with us for the last six weeks, since we've heard Elimelech's name, and it comes up finally again in this passage. It's easy to forget that in a real way, this story, it's about Ruth and Naomi and the others, Boaz, but it's really about Elimelech as well. Elimelech was trying to establish his lasting significance when suddenly he died. And his early death, of course, precipitates, it starts off the crisis that happens in our story. It puts the significance of the women in his family into big, big trouble, doesn't it? Naomi, you know, she's depressed at the beginning of this story. But she's not depressed because she's lost her soulmate, like we might say. She is devastated because her own significance as a woman is bound up with the family project that Elimelech was trying to work on. Ruth was not simply heartbroken because you know, she lost that hunk of a hubby that she was married to. There was probably that. But she was made radically vulnerable because she wasn't able to play her part her assigned part in the family business, bearing a son to inherit Elimelech's name and his land in the promised land. And so Ruth and Naomi's needs are definitely emotional, 
And, but they're also social and they're spiritual as well. Their need for redemption is a need for significance in the face of death. And death is now all around them and staring them in the face as well. So what happens then on this decisive day when Boaz heads into the city to see if he can secure the redemption of these old ladies and even of these dead men? Well, verse 1, and it would help to follow along here, Boaz walks to the town gate. This is where business happened after all. And just as Boaz arrives, this relative of Elimelech's walks up, the nearer of kin, the one who could be the redeemer of their family walks up. And as soon as he sees him, he says, come over here. And then he quickly gathers 10 elders, a quorum, so that they can have an impromptu council meeting there at the gates. And he tells this relative about the family's need for redemption. And he actually makes it sound, doesn't he, like it's a really great opportunity. Verse 4, it's like he's saying, here's your chance, buddy. Be a true Israelite. In America, we would say, step up to the plate and take a swing. Redeem this land of your dead relative. Buy it. Keep it in the family. Make sure that Elimelech, your near kin, doesn't go down in the history books as the poor fellow who lost his family's slice of the promised land. And the land, of course, will eventually turn a profit for you. So what do you say? Will you be a redeemer? This fellow can get a good piece of land, and in the process, he can kind of be something of a local hero as well. A good deal. And then you can almost see this fellow step forward, can't you? Like in front of all the elders. I will redeem it, right? With kind of bravado. I myself will be the redeemer. And with that, boom. Elimelech is saved from being forgotten, from, from insignificance. Now, Elimelech is not back from the dead, but he's brought back from insignificance and from his utter failure, which for a person in that time is just about the same. A happy ending, right? For Elimelech, for Naomi. And they all lived happily ever after with this redeemer of theirs, the end, right? Not quite, not quite. Let's turn the page just a bit. So we've got the need for redemption. Let's talk then about the cost of redemption. Not so fast, Boaz says. And he's brilliant here, isn't he? He brings up the important detail, doesn't he? Verse 5. Listen, buddy. If you, if you take this deal, you are also taking to yourself a wife, this Moabitess, Ruth. She comes with the land, and then it becomes your job to marry her, to try to have a child with her, and then to pass along Elimelech's land to that child. Cool? So what's this relative going to do? He can be even more heroic than anyone expects, right? Or he can be a smart businessman, and he can back out of this deal. Now, if he backs out, he can secure the inheritance, the significance, the name that he really wants to make and that he really wants to leave. Remember, he's going to die too, and he's got all this on his mind as well. His way of escaping the horrors of death is to leave his heirs with more than they started with. So what's his response? He packs away a little bit and he says, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger 
my own estate. I cannot do it, verse 6. So the cost is too high for him, isn't it? More mouths to feed. And the land ends up not in his name, but in someone else's name. So much for the prophet. He's making a name, after all, for someone else. It costs too much to be a redeemer. Now, of course, we've been reading the story, right? And we don't want this guy to marry Ruth, do we? We want Boaz and Ruth to live happily ever after. We want our romantic story as well. But before we rejoice in the happy ending that now we can see coming, right? Uh, Let me ask you this. What's this other guy's name, this guy who says, I'll do it, and then backs down? What's his name? Let me give you a second. Look through verses 1 through 8 in your Bibles. It's on page 259 and 260 in your pew Bibles. (laughs) What's his name? Sorry, another, another naughty question from me. You can't find his name, can you? And that means, of course, that this fella, by just doing what was sensible, by just doing the smart thing, by making a wise business decision, by looking out for his own name and for his own legacy, by counting the cost, what's happened? What's the result of his perfectly sensible decision? Answer? His name is blotted out of the book of Ruth, isn't it? In fact, verse 1, Boaz calls him what the NIV translates, friend. Hey, friend, come over here. You might say, hey, buddy, come here a minute. The term in in Hebrew is actually condescending and dismissive a little bit. It's sort of like, saying this person's not significant. Around here, it might be like saying, hey, uh, Mueller Pooler or Schmitty Diddy, come on over here, right? The point is, this guy is definitely not the point of the story. He's hustled onto the stage. He's given a chance to be significant, to do something beyond himself, to participate in the redemption of another. And he decides to look out for himself. And just like that, He's forgotten. He has a chance to have his name stand alongside some really remarkable Bethlehemites, right? People like David, other minor figures like, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, others. He has a chance to show what we've been calling hesed, right? To show extraordinary loving kindness and loyalty in that moment. He's got an audience to do it in front of, to do what we've been seeing Ruth and Boaz do time and again in our studies, right? A chance for significance. But instead, he'll try to make a name for himself, by himself, for himself. And now he goes off to build, doesn't he, on his little slice of Bethlehem farmland, a little pathetic Tower of Babel, perhaps, for himself and his family. And then we never hear from him again. I know that sounds a little harsh, but the point is that you and I today have, and every day, have a choice to make, don't we, right? Are we going to live our lives for our legacies? To see how much money 
we can have and spend and enjoy in our short time here and then see how much we can leave to our kids? Are we going to go around building our pathetic little towers of Babel on our thin little slices of territory? Are we going to spend all of our energy trying to make a name for ourselves? Folks, the way to true significance is not that, but it's rather to enter into the joy of the Lord and to be called instead by his name. To play perhaps some small role in someone else's story of redemption. That's the glorious life. And so we have to stop worrying about making a name for ourselves. And we've got to start participating, even anonymously, in the little stories of redemption that we see happening around us. Become aware of them and then enter into them and see how we can show Now that we are under God's own hesed, his own loving kindness, how can we show a little bit of that? And how can we give a little bit of that away to others? Don't get wiped off the pages of redemptive history by trying to make history about you. There's nothing more pathetic than that. And as that greater Boaz, the Lord Jesus himself said, Whoever tries to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake gives it away generously and extravagantly and with hesed finds it, finds it. The cost of redemption, count the cost. So we've got the need for redemption. We've got the cost of redemption. And then lastly, the joy of of redemption. And you say, joy? You just depressed us, pastor. I didn't mean to be depressing. So let's turn then to the joy of redemption. So this fella, Schmitty Vitty, or whatever we're going to call him, disappears, and Boaz then steps up in front of the elders and the townspeople that have gathered around. And he makes verse 9 a wonderful speech, doesn't he? And I want you to notice the way that Boaz's speech here is laser-focused on his mission, on what he has been called by God to do, on his commitments. It's not about his feelings, although his speech was truly heartfelt, although his heart was certainly bursting with joy at the opportunity to do something that was so significant. It's not about his name and building his name up, but it's about the name of a man who has already died, for goodness sake. It's not about his significance, but about the significance of another, about several others. And did you notice, it's not really even so much about Ruth, his bride. His marriage to Ruth is certainly built on affection. They've come to appreciate one another so much, and they've praised one another already. And once they're married, they make love, and they become lovers, to be sure. There's plenty of romance But marriage for Boaz, as we see here in his speech, is not a self-fulfillment quest. Finally, I found this woman who's going to give me happiness. It's not that way for Ruth either. Their marriage is first and foremost a mission to show loving loyalty to Naomi and to her family, to bring a little bit of God's own abundant generosity to bear on this sad, poor old widow, and through her to the dead man 
Elimelech. They want to revive this dead man's name to sort of reverse all of his blundering attempts at trying to pass on something to his children. And they want to, they want to lead, don't they, the Elimelech family back under the wings of the Almighty where it belongs. The only place where that family can thrive, where it can have significance that goes well beyond death. So between the two of them, their mission and their commitments, they've created quite a stir at the Bethlehem city gates, haven't they? This happens coincidentally in verse 11 of chapter 3. We hear that everyone's talking about Ruth and the way that she's going beyond all expectations to bless others. And then 11 in chapter 4 is when Boaz does this as well and we hear from the crowd. And they're full of joy as they respond to his speech. Joyful chatter. The elders could have just been legal and they could have said, we are witnesses. Okay, can we go about our day now, Boaz? But in verse 11, they erupt, don't they, into a benediction, into all of the hopes that they have for this family. They say, may Ruth be as significant for our country, for the kingdom of God, as Leah and Rachel were. Leah and Rachel, of course, who themselves were barren and had nothing and then ended up mothering all the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a joyous and glorious speech and a joyous and glorious response. And so Boaz excites all of the hopes and the joys of the people of Bethlehem. It doesn't cost too much for Boaz, even though it will cost him much. And I want you to think about this as we close. Where is the rejoicing happening over the redemption that we experience? Or if you want, let's think about it this way. Does Boaz's name become famous in Bethlehem? Like the townspeople said, sure. I don't know how this works. I don't know whether when you die and you die in Christ Jesus and your spirit goes to be with the Lord. I don't know if you get like privileges of like sneaking in on church services and seeing what people are doing and saying about you when you're gone. I don't know if Boaz right now in glory as a spirit waiting for the resurrection of his body, if he knows that we're talking about him here. It's a little spooky, speculative. But if he gets that privilege, he's up there chuckling and saying, you know, I'm not much of a famous Bethlehemite after all. There are far more famous Bethlehemites than me. And one in particular that I'm, I'm right next to here. And it's the risen and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, the little baby of Bethlehem. And so Boaz can see perhaps history unfolding and culminating in his ancestor, or rather his descendant, by the flesh, the Lord Jesus. And he can see that the Lord Jesus has stood up in the presence of the divine council and in the presence of the rulers of Israel. And he has said, I have counted the cost of their redemption. And I know that it's high. It will cost me a life that is generously outpoured. 
I promise never to miss an opportunity to bless so long as I'm walking the dusty streets of Bethlehem and Judea and Samaria and everywhere I go. And then I will go to Calvary. And at the end of my life, I will say, not my will, but yours be done. I have counted the cost and I will step forward and I will be their redeemer. What, what joy must be in Boaz's heart to know that there's someone bigger and better than him in the business of redemption, to realize that all of his little participation in little itsy-bitsy redemptions of little itsy-bitsy families on tiny little slices of promised land have come to their grand conclusion and their climax in the truer and better Boaz. And here's the other thing that we can know. We can know that if we try to make a name for ourselves, if we live our lives for ourselves, building up our wealth and our status and trying to pass it on to others, getting as much praise and admiration as we can possibly muster, that very likely, like Mr. Schmitty Vitty here, our lives and our significance will be kaput. But if we tuck ourselves under the wings of our true Redeemer, our Lord Jesus, and we say, he has lived for me and he has died for me, I can never, ever be blotted out of his book of affection, of hesed, of covenant, loyal, faithful love for me. It will never stop, and I am always his and he is mine. And then, if that's true of you, the joys of redemption are just getting started. And every day of our redemption will be better than the last for all eternity forward. Listen, if you haven't tucked yourself under the wings of the one who redeems at such great cost, then you need to. And if you've done it a thousand times, do it this morning for the thousand and first time. Because our names can never be blotted out of his book of life, of redemption, of love. Gracious God, we thank you for this story which has stirred our hearts, which has, of course, a great happy ending. We thank you that we have significance beyond our graves, that one day you will raise even our bodies, reunite them with our spirits which will be safe with the Lord Jesus, glorify us and then give us the kingdom that you've promised to your people. We long for the day when you return and when you clearly do all things well for your glory and for our good. And we long to, for all eternity, pour our heartfelt service into others, imitating your love for us. Put us, we pray, in your book of life and keep us there with our names even written on the palm of your hand and never blot us out as you've promised from your book and we will live our lives fully for you. Forgive us for when we don't and tuck us back under your wings. We make our prayer together in the strong name of our great redeemer, the truer and greater Boaz, the Bethlehemite of all Bethlehemites, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.